Good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. What a blessing it is to be able to gather here with you guys and to worship our Lord and Savior, and not just uh, through the words that we sing, but now as we turn our attention to the study of His Word as an act of worship, really just submitting ourselves to the Lord in His Word. This morning, we're going to be continuing our study uh, of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last week, we finished off the first of two major sections in the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first part of the book, chapters 1 through 3, dealt primarily with past personal experiences of the church. Today, uh, we begin the second and final major section of the book, dealing primarily with future practical exhortations. So chapters 1 through 3 for we're more informational. We kind of find out kind of how the church was planted, how it started, kind of where they're at, and we kind of get brought to, you know, uh, present time. And then chapters four and five are going to be more applicational, okay? So as Paul looks to further instruct them and to strengthen them and to establish them in their faith, he now is going to turn to, hey, here's what you guys need to be doing versus here's how you've been doing. This is what's ahead for you. So our text this morning is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bible with you uh, this morning, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians 4 if you haven't done so already. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles located underneath some of the chairs around you. We do think it's important that you're able to follow along in the Word and read for yourself. And then once you're there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'd like to request that you rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. Now, I'm going to read our text today from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. Just do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. So Paul transitions to the applicational portion of his letter to the church in Thessalonica with the following in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the opportunity that we have to open it up, to allow it to speak to us, to allow your word to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do just submit ourselves to you and your word. We yield ourselves to what your spirit wants to speak. Lord, I pray that I may decrease, you may increase, that the words that are shared that are of you, uh, that... Um, we would receive those things, that we would hold on to them, and we would allow them to uh, just minister to us. Uh, those things that are not of you, Lord, I just pray they'd fall on deaf ears. And so, Lord, I give you this time and ask for your blessings upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may have a seat. So this section before us in verses 1 through 12 is characterized by the word walk. Okay, It begins and ends referencing our walk. Uh, in the King, New King James Version, at least, the word walk is used in verse 1, where Paul speaks of how we ought to walk. Okay? And then in our final verse, Paul again uses the word walk when he talks about how we should walk properly toward those who are outside. Now, the word walk is a favorite word of Paul in describing our Christian life. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, Paul speaks about how we also should walk in the newness of life. 
In chapter 8 of Romans, he writes, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, in chapter 13 of Romans, he writes, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. In 2 Corinthians, he writes how we are to walk by faith, not by sight. In Galatians, he exhorts, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In Ephesians, he uses the term over and over again, how we are to walk worthy of the calling in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. How we are to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles in chapter 4, verse 17. How are we are to walk in love in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And we are to walk as children of light in Ephesians 5, 8, and we're to walk circumspectly in Ephesians 5, 15. Over and, and over again, Paul uses this term to describe the kind of life we should be living as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll spare you all the other many other times he uses this term in Philippians and in Colossians and in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians. Suffice it to say, he uses it quite often, okay? And the idea behind this term to describe our Christian life is really quite simple to understand. For we started our Christian life with a step of faith. But after that initial step of faith, where we became saved by faith, we then must continue forward in our faith. That initial step of faith is followed up with another step and another step, okay? A continual walk of faith as we continue to seek after the Lord and follow His will for our lives. You see, God isn't just interested in us taking a step of faith and getting saved. Okay? No, He wants to see us continue to operate by faith, to continue to walk by faith, to grow in our faith, to mature in our faith. And so Paul often refers to this continual growth in the Lord as part of our walk in the Lord. He is concerned with how we ought to walk, how we ought to live our life as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Paul brings this up in connection to his letter to the church in Thessalonica is interesting as well. For we have noted already the main theme of the book of 1 Thessalonians, okay? That it deals with the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul ends each chapter of this small book of 1 Thessalonians speaking about and referencing the coming of the Lord. And so putting these things together, as Paul turns toward the applicational portion of his letter, what he's really emphasizing is how the Thessalonians ought to walk in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. And seeing as how we are still awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ ourselves, it would seem that the application that Paul speaks of here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5 as we continue our study through it in the coming weeks is just as much applicable to us as it was to the Thessalonians. Okay? For we too need to know how we ought to walk in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, for our time together this morning, I've decided to entitle our study, A Pleasing Walk, okay? And I'm not talking about a nice stroll along the beach or along the seawall or some other favorite place of yours, something that might be pleasing to us, okay? No, what we're going to be looking at is having a pleasing walk before God, okay? How can we please God in our walk of faith? And so let's turn our to our text, the opening verses again. We'll talk a little bit about what it means to have a pleasing walk. Read verses 1 and 2 with me again. He says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We'll stop right there. Paul starts off chapter 4, with the word, finally then. And then he proceeds to talk for another two chapters, okay? Another 46 verses, which is actually more than what he wrote in the first three chapters of the book. 
And uh, it just goes to show that Paul is your typical preacher, okay? When he says, finally, then, or lastly, or in conclusion, just know that he's about halfway through, okay? Um, the emphasis here, you guys, really is Paul's saying, finally, then, is simply his way of transitioning to this final section of the letter. The first part was informational, chapters 1 through 3, okay? The second and final part is applicational in chapters 4 and 5. So Paul's simply transitioning into this applicational portion of his letter here in the opening of chapter 4. And Paul urges and exhorts the Thessalonians to abound more and more. You see, the church in Thessalonica was doing very well for themselves, all things considered. Remember, they didn't have a ton of time with Paul and his missionary companions. They didn't have a lot of spiritual uh, mentoring and discipleship or training. Okay? They were very new in their faith, and they were experiencing, on top of that, a lot of persecution. But despite all of that, they were doing pretty well. Okay? And Paul urges and exhorts them to continue to do what they are doing. Paul starts off his applicational portion of, by really encouraging them and giving them some positive reinforcements. They were doing well, but they needed to continue to do well, to, to continue to abound more and more. Paul had instructed them and taught them how they ought to walk and to please God when he was with them. And this brings us to our first point about our walk with the Lord. You see, our walk should be pleasing to the Lord. Our as Christians, our focus needs to be upon pleasing God, okay? You see, everyone on this planet lives their life to please someone, okay? Many people live their lives to please themselves, okay? They base their life on doing whatever makes them happy, whatever makes them feel good about themselves. Others, they live their lives to please other people, people like their spouse or their parents or even their children or someone else significant in their life. There is a danger, though, that comes with living to please others. We can become man-pleasers or people-pleasers, and we end up devoting our lives to trying to make someone else happy, which really is an impossible task for true happiness and contentment and satisfaction only comes from the Lord. And so if we're trying to be that for them, it's not going to work, okay? Instead of living to please ourselves or living to please others, we are to live our lives with the intent and purpose of pleasing God, okay? This ought to be the priority of every Christian, to live a life pleasing to God, to walk in a pleasing manner towards Him. I won't call for a, a, a raise of hands, but I would hope that if I said, hey, who in here wants to live a life that pleases God, that we would all say, yeah, we all want that, right? That we would all want to please God in the way that we live our life. And this begs the question, how do we please God, right? Well, the Bible tells us a number of different ways that we can please God. Psalm Chapter 19, verse 14 states, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable or pleasing, some translations read, in your sight. And so we can please God with the words that we speak. We can please God with the thoughts that we think. Romans 12:1 proclaims, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. Again, other translations use the word pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And so we please God by turning over our lives completely to him and trusting him to guide us in our service of him. In the book of Colossians, Paul speaks of how we may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God are ways that we can please God in our walk with Him. Hebrews 11.6 proclaims, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, referring to God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we can please God through our faith, through believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not, which the word is translated 
sanctification. And the other five times it's translated as holiness. And the word carries the idea of being set apart or of being dedicated to God. Okay? Now, the term sanctification in the English can refer to two different things. Okay? It can refer to the state of being sanctified. It, it speaks about our position in Christ. We are sanctified by our faith in Jesus Christ. First Corinthians reads, but you were washed but you were sanctified, past tense, okay, it's already happened, you're sanctified, okay, and um, by, excuse me, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. So when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were sanctified, we were set apart from the rest of the world. The Holy Spirit came and took residence within us, setting us apart to God, we became a, a new creation, completely different from who we once were. But the word can also refer to a process of becoming more and more like Christ. Positionally, we are in Christ. It is the result of our faith in Christ. But practically, we are still growing. We are still being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. It is a process that will continue until the day we are called home to be with the Lord. And so the way that it is used here, it is referencing the process, not the result. Okay? God's will for our lives is that we would continue to be set apart, that we would continue to be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And this speaks of the process of our sanctification, the process of us uh, and our holiness, of us becoming holy, becoming set apart. You see, God wants us to walk in holiness, he wants us to live a life that is set apart for Him, a life dedicated to Him. There's one, this is one of the ways that we can please the Lord, is through living a life dedicated to Him, by walking in holiness. Now, part of that work of sanctification, part of walking in holiness and living a life set apart from the rest of the world involves moral purity, okay? And we're going to get into a topic this morning that's not always fun to talk about at church, but we're going to talk about it because it's next in the text, and we just go verse by verse and let God lead and guide. And so, we have to understand that during that day and age, moral purity wasn't something that many considered to be of value. Morality was something that the philosophers talked about and argued about amongst the Greeks and the Romans, but it wasn't something that most people bothered themselves with. History tells us about how in Greek religion, prostitution was considered a priestly prerogative, and extramarital sex was sometimes viewed and considered as an act of worship to the various gods throughout the land. The many idols worshipped in the regions across the Roman Empire often had an emphasis on sex. Some temples even employed prostitutes for the pleasure of their worshipers that would come. The ancient Greek statesman and writer Demosthenes expressed the general amoral view of sex in the ancient Roman Empire. He wrote, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. We keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Okay, that's kind of what was the norm was. Yeah, we've, prostitutes is okay, mistresses is okay, and you know, wives is okay. And it's just, it's all good. Okay, and this actually, this guy is from the fourth century BC, so it only had gotten worse from that time forward. You see, during this time frame, when Paul was writing. Generally, people regarded any kind of sexual activity as acceptable. Okay? It was quite common for a man not to limit his sexual relationship to his wife. Homosexuality was common. Incest was overlooked. Slaves were kept and used for sex. And the mindset towards sex was anything goes. Okay? And you guys, we live in a similar world today where pretty much everything and anything goes. Not only is sexual immorality acceptable, it is celebrated and it is propagated in our culture today. Here we are in the month of June, 
which for the United States and a few other countries is known as the LGBTQ plus Pride Month. Okay? And I think they've actually added an I and an A in there as well, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay? But lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgenders, queers, and any others who don't necessarily fit into the other letters, they're being celebrated. That's what the plus is for. Okay? Kinda, it's an all-inclusive, we'll catch anybody else. Okay? They are being celebrated. They are being given a special month where schools and other forms of public educations advocate and commemorate people engaged in these practices. You see, it isn't just accepted nowadays as being something normal. It has to be celebrated. It has to be commemorated. The world today wants to advocate and celebrate any sort of sexual activity outside of God's will while demeaning and ridiculing any views that are in line with God's will. Right? You talk to people about living a uh, godly uh, life in regards to sex and how you want to you know, keep yourself until you get married, and you will be mocked, and you will be ridiculed, and you will be laughed at. But if you're anything outside of God's will, you're celebrated and you're commemorated and applauded. In encouraging the Thessalonians to live a morally upright life, to walk in holiness, he wrote telling them that they should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word in the Greek for sexual immorality is the word pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography from. Okay. Sexual immorality is a very broad term that includes any sort of sexual activity outside of the confines of holy matrimony. And I do say holy matrimony because the world today has come up with their own definition of what marriage is and isn't. But God is the creator of marriage. He is the one that gets to define it. He is the one that gets to explain to us what it is. And according to God, Marriage is one man and one woman uniting together in covenantal agreement to love each other and to serve one another for the rest of their lives. Okay? Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, from the, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so then they are no longer two, but one flesh Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, if the world comes along and says that marriage between two men or two women is acceptable, or that you can be married to multiple people at the same time, that's polygamy, okay? It was uh, common back in the day as well. That doesn't all of a sudden change what God clearly says about marriage, okay? Again, marriage was instituted by God. And his definition of marriage is what we must look to, not the world's definition of what they want to call marriage. Say, oh, that's, that's, that's legal marriage, okay? No, that's not legal marriage. No, it's not marriage. That might be legal within the you know, system you've created, but that is not marriage in regards to how God created it. And this is an institute that was created by God. He's the one that gets to define what it is. And so... Sexual immorality involves any sort of sexual sin outside of holy matrimony. Adultery, fornication, premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, extramarital sex, self-sex are all included. But also things like pornography and sexting are included in this term sexual immorality. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is immoral and it is not in accordance with God's word. You guys, sex is a beautiful and wonderful gift from the Lord. It is something that God gave to those in holy matrimony for pleasure and procreation and as an expression of love between a husband and wife. But sex outside of marriage is prohibited by God. Not because God wants to make things difficult for us or to deprive us of something wonderful, okay? He puts up the border to protect us, okay? Sexual immorality has the power to destroy us physically and spiritually. It should not be underestimated. It should not be belittled, 
Okay? It has devastated countless lives, and it has destroyed families. Okay? I've seen it time and again. Okay? Churches have been destroyed because of it. Communities and even nations have been destroyed because of sexual immorality. God limits sex to the marriage bed because he knows and understands the damage it will cause outside of the marriage bed. This abstaining from sexual immorality was part of the sanctification process. It was something that would set them apart from the rest of the world and from what the rest of society believed and practiced. And so, it is God's will for your life that you abstain from sexual immorality. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul gives some key details that are involved in abstaining from sexual immorality and how important it is for us. To begin with, we should know how to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust. Now, the exact meaning of this phrase is debated by some. Some believe that when Paul refers to his own vessel, that he's referring to one's own body, that we all should know how to possess or to control our own body. Because we are believers, we should be able to exercise self-control and not give in to the lust of the flesh. This is something that makes us different from the rest of the world. Galatians 5 speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay? Against such there is no law. Self-control is something that comes from having the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And so the Christian can't say, well, I just couldn't control myself, you know, and I just had to do it. No, you did not, okay? God's Spirit dwells inside of you, and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Now, another way that this word vessel is translated is in regards to one's wife. You see, Peter uses the same word to refer to the wife being given honor from her husband as the weaker vessel in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And so when Paul writes how a person should know how to possess his own vessel, it could be that he's speaking about how a person knows how to treat his wife in a sanctifying and honoring way. And that engaging in sexual immorality would not be a way to sanctify or honor your spouse. You know, in my view, I think both could be true, okay? As a believer, we should be able to exercise self-control because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. But also, I also realize and understand that as husband and wife, you become one body. You become one flesh. So knowing how to possess your own body, your own vessel, could include knowing how to control or keep your spouse from sexual immorality. You see, as husband and wife, you have a responsibility toward one another to meet each other's needs, Paul alludes to this fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he writes, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, the same exact word right here, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so Paul gives instruction on how this could apply to the idea of the responsibilities between a husband and wife in regards to protecting one another against sexual immorality. Now, abstaining from sexual immorality not only involves possessing one's own vessel, but it also involves knowing God. So you see, Paul wrote how we are not to be like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, people that do not know God, who do not have an intimate personal relationship with God, will obviously act contrary to God. By their own nature, this will be so. But because we do know God, because we have entered into a personal relationship with God, we should be obedient to God. We should do <clears throat> as He says. We should obey His commandments. 
That's what John wrote about in 1 John chapter 2. He writes, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Keeping God's commandments is evidence of us knowing God. If we say we know God, but then we walk contrary to the way he walked, okay, and we walk contrary to the commandments that he's given to us, then we are not walking in truth. The truth is not in us, and we are nothing more than liars. I know this isn't a fun portion of Scripture, okay? Now, you guys, this doesn't mean that we must perfectly keep all of God's commandments. I want to make sure you understand that, okay? This doesn't mean that we must, if we know God, that we will perfectly keep all of God's commandments. None of us can, can or ever will do that. But the idea here is that our life is characterized by a desire to walk as he walked. We desire to obey. We may fall short, but our goal and our intention is to obey. It is to live a lifestyle that is in accordance with God's commands. Okay? And so, we have to... Uh, abstaining from sexual immorality involves knowing God. Another important aspect as to why we should abstain from sexual immorality has to do with our fellow brothers. Okay? In the previous two examples, the emphasis was upon the individual himself not partaking in sexual immorality. But in verse 6, Paul alludes to others that are involved in sexual immorality. We should abstain from sexual immorality for referring to a fellow countryman or neighbor. Again, it could be male or female. And so when one engages in sexual immorality, it is considered as taking advantage of others and defrauding others. How established. God intends that you save sexual activity for your spouse. And so if you engage in sexual activity before then, you are robbing your spouse of the joy of fulfilling that commandment from the Lord. Sexual sin almost always involves someone else. Even pornography involves someone else. You are looking at and lusting over someone else's daughter, someone else's wife, or someone else's future wife, or you're lusting over someone else's son, or someone else's husband, or someone else's future husband. And according to Jesus, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that goes the same for women, lusting after men as well. And so, we should abstain from sexual immorality for the sake of one another, knowing that sexual immorality defrauds the individual and the other person involved in their sexual immorality. Well, in the second half of verse 6 through to verse 8, Paul gives us some reasons why we should abstain from sexual immorality. Note them with me. Number one, we see that we should abstain from sexual immorality because God will judge those who engage in such activity. Paul writes that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. That word avenger in the Greek, it speaks of God as the one who executes righteousness and justice. It speaks of God as one who punishes sin, one who brings justice against those who break God's laws. God will bring judgment against those who practice sexual immorality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, states that marriage is honorable among all, and that the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Hey guys, this is pretty serious stuff here. 
Okay, we're, we're talking about your inheritance in the kingdom of God. God's word is clear that those who, whose lives are characterized by these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says the same in Galatians. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, it's that word pornea, sexual immorality, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. If you practice these things, if this is part of your normal pattern of life, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God according to what the Word of God tells us in Galatians and in Colossians, or in 1 Corinthians. And the implication here is very obvious, I think. If you are a true believer in the Lord, you won't practice these things. If you truly know God, you will obey His commands and you will not live your life in opposition to His Word. You will follow His commands. Again, I'm reminded of what John wrote when he said, he who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth's not Him. If you practice these things, you look over this thing and you say, oh yeah, I don't care what God's word says about this. I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to practice this as a part of my normal life. I have no guilt, no conviction whatsoever. I'm going to continue to do these things. You, you are in a dangerous place. Okay, You are in a very dangerous place. So we should abstain from sexual immorality because we do not want to experience the judgment of God. But we also should abstain from sexual immorality because of our calling in the Lord. God has called us to holiness. He has called us to live a life that's honoring and glorifying of himself. He's not called us unto uncleanness or to impurity, but to holiness, to right living. He's called us to be set apart and dedicated to him. Peter writes, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. We are called to be imitators of the Lord, to walk as he walked. Third, we should abstain from sexual immorality because not, not to do so would be a rejection of God. If we say to ourselves, well, I really don't care what Paul says here about abstaining from sexual morality. I'm okay with it, and I'm going to continue practicing it. Listen, we're not rejecting Paul and his word. We are rejecting God and his word. You know, I have had uh, a number of discussions through the years with people who don't like the firm stance I take when it comes to sexual immorality and what it entails. And I've had people tell me that, you know, God made them a certain way and that God wants them to be happy and that God wants them to know love like everyone else and that, you know, they should be able to permit, be permitted to do it uh, differently. I've had people tell me that God is okay with what they're doing. You know, I had one guy come in and he said, it's okay, God and I have an understanding. And I'm like, oh, okay. I think I understand uh, as well, and it wasn't a good understanding. I've had people tell me that they believe living in sexual immorality was what God wanted for them, that they had prayed about it, and God gave them peace about that particular situation. You know, we've prayed about it, and we're going to, you know, live together, and we're going to do this, you know, and we have peace with it, and we think God's okay with it. And I'm like, God's not okay with that. But people you know, do all sorts of things and, and try to say, yeah, God is okay with it. And I'm at peace with it, even though it's completely contrary to what God's word says. I've had people tell me that I've misinterpreted the scripture and that God really didn't mean certain things when it came to sexual immorality and what it encompasses. That it really is only speaking about prostitution and that's it. All these other things that you say are included in the sexual immorality, that's really not what it means. And I want to be as loving and as kind as possible. But when I have those conversations, it really, it doesn't bother me so much. Okay? Because I know that their beef is not with me, but is with God. And I'm just telling them what God's word says. And when they reject me and they get mad at me for telling them the truth, I have to be able to let those things go. 
and understand that they aren't rejecting me, but God. That their problem is not with me, but it is with God and God's word. That's what's Paul, that is what Paul is saying here. If you reject this command to abstain from sexual immorality, okay, and you're just going to do it anyways, you're not rejecting Paul. You are rejecting God, okay, and you're rejecting his word. The fourth thing worth noting here in regard to why we should abstain from sexual immorality has to do with God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit has been given to us to empower us for us to walk in victory. Paul gives us a very bold promise in Galatians when it comes to walking in the Spirit. He writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise from God. Okay? If you will walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay? It's not a matter of like, well, I won't do it as much or I'll have victory here and there. No, if you are walking in the Spirit, you will not give in to the lust of the flesh. How do we abstain from sexual immorality in our lives? We do so by walking in the Spirit. Paul writes in Romans, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. We must set our minds upon the things of the Spirit, and in doing so, we will live according to the Spirit. God has given us the resources that we need in order to have victory in this area of sexual morality. His Spirit is more than enough. If we will simply walk in the Spirit and set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we will not walk in the flesh. We will not live in sexual immorality. We will not give in to the lusts of the flesh. As we are led by the Spirit of God, He will lead us to Christ. He will remind us of what Christ did, what Christ spoke, that we may be conformed into the image of Christ. And so God has given to us His Spirit as a resource to live a holy life, that we may walk in holiness. Well, that concludes the first section about how we can please God through walking in holiness. Now let's turn to the second and final part of our study dealing with how we can please God through walking in love. And don't worry, I'm more than halfway through, okay? Read verses 9 through 12 with me. It says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So here in these verses, Paul speaks about the need for the Thessalonians to continue to walk in love. This wasn't necessarily a problem area for them. We've already noted on a few different occasions how the church was known for its love, how they labored in love, and how they persevered through affliction and continued to love one another. And so Paul starts off by saying, hey, I, I really don't need to tell you to love one another because, well, you're already doing it. You know, that, that's my paraphrase, okay? Paul mentioned how their love was known and felt by all the brethren that were in the region of Macedonia and how they had been taught by God to love one another. How were they taught by God himself, you may be wondering? Well, most likely it was through God's Holy Spirit that took residence within them when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the many things the Holy Spirit does is remind us of the words of Christ. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will take what is his and declare it to us. And so the Holy Spirit takes Jesus' words and declares them to us. He reminds us of what Jesus taught. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. Okay? Jesus commanded his followers to love one another. In John 15, 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus taught that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so it seemed that God's Holy Spirit taught them to love one another, just as Christ had taught his followers during his earthly ministry. And though they had been taught to love one another, and they were doing well at loving one another, Paul still exhorted and encouraged them to increase more and more in their love. 
Loving one another isn't something that we just do a few times and then stop doing it, okay? It's not a, a checklist of things to do, okay? We don't wake up early in the morning and come to church and say, well, I showed love towards someone this morning. Good thing I got it done over with early in the day, and I, now I don't have to love anybody the rest of the day, okay? That's not what this is all about, you guys, okay? We must continue in love. As Christians, we are called to walk in love. We must increase our love more and more in Paul's prayer for love of having more than enough. And so Paul commends them for their love, but at the same time, he encourages them to continue to cultivate the love that they have for one another. Now in verses 11 and 12, Paul mentions a few things that they could be doing to increase their love. Love for one another. But walking in love doesn't entail only walking in love toward our fellow believers, but that we would walk in love towards all people. You see, in verse 11, Paul mentions things that could be done to walk properly toward those who were outside the faith. Let's note them real quick before we wrap up our study. Paul encourages them to, one, aspire to lead a quiet life. Okay, the idea is that they were to hold their peace, to live in a quiet and peaceful manner towards others. They weren't to be fighting with one another. They weren't to be fighting against non-believers. They were to live peaceably with one another. Romans 12, 18 states, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Hebrews 12, 14 affirms, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that's, that's it, okay? That's the target, you guys. We, wanna, we want people to see the Lord in our life. We want people to see the peace that we have in the Lord. We want people to look at our lives and the peace that we have in the midst of all sorts of crazy situations and circumstances and for them to think to themselves, I want what they have. Okay, I want that kind of peace. And when they ask about how we can have such peace in all of the chaos, we can tell them about the Lord and how He gives us His perfect peace, how He gives to us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Not only did he encourage them to lead a quiet life, but Paul also urged them to mind their own business. Now, some of you didn't know that mind your own business was in the Bible, okay? You've probably heard this phrase a number of times. Maybe you've even used it a few times yourself without even knowing that you were quoting Scripture, okay? First uh, Thessalonians 4.11, mind your own business, okay? The next time you feel like telling someone to mind their own business, you could simply just tell them, hey, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, okay? Don't tell them what it is. Just have them go look it up, okay? All kidding aside, okay? What, what does Paul mean here by telling them to mind their own business? Paul was warning them against being a busybody, okay? About going around, getting involved in everyone else's business and spreading gossip. Now, evidently, this was something that Timothy may have picked up on during his time with them. Okay, perhaps there were some that were starting to show signs of being a busybody, of getting you know, up into everyone else's business. For in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul will bring this topic back up. And he will state, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. He basically said, Hey, You've got too much time on your hands. You need to get a job and go work and, and provide for yourself, okay? Because you, you're getting into everybody else's business. Now, this leads us to the third thing that Paul spoke about in verse 11, how they were to work with their own hands. Manual labor wasn't something that the Greek prided themselves upon. They believed that manual labor was fit only for slaves, and they would try to get away with doing as little as possible. But Paul encourages them all to work with their hands, <laughs> And the idea here is to put in a good, honest day's work, okay? An honest day's labor, that they would not cheat their employer or be lazy and leave everything else for others to do. As Christians, we are not walking in love if we go to work and we cut corners and we slack off, we show up late and we leave early. That is not a good witness to the world around us. And remember, that's at the heart of what Paul's encouraging them towards here. He wants them to have a good, solid reputation amongst those outside the faith. He wants them to live their lives in such a way that their lives are attractive to the unbeliever. 
Okay? When a Christian worker comes in and works as unto the Lord, and he gives his best effort, he shows up on time, and he's willing to give extra effort in order to please their employer, it represents Christ to others. People see your work ethic, how you are a person of integrity, and how you work diligently, and it makes them want to know what makes you so different, and it makes, what makes you such a great worker. And then once again, you have that opportunity to share Christ with them. You get to tell them how you work as unto the Lord and that you want to be a good example in all that you do, that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Paul concludes this section by affirming that if they would walk this way towards those outside the faith, okay, if they would see to it that they led a quiet life and that they minded their own business and that they worked hard, that they would be showing love towards them and that they would be lacking in nothing. You guys may remember back in chapter 3, okay, Paul spoke of his desire to perfect what was lacking in their faith, right? They were still very young. They still needed to be instructed in, in a few things, okay? Yes, they loved, and they loved one another, and they were doing really good at loving one another, but evidently, some of the way that they were acting was not loving towards those outside of the faith. And so he's encouraging them here, and he's saying, hey, if you'll make these changes, that thing that I mentioned about you, what you are lacking, hey, you won't lack anything. This is what you need to do. Okay? Broaden your love. Just don't love one another, okay? but love everybody, okay? love all the people around you. Amen? Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to open your word and to enjoy just uh, getting into it, it's a hard topic to talk about, uh, Lord, but it is one that uh, you have for us. And uh, Lord, I do pray that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, that our walk would please you, that we would walk in holiness, Lord, that we would abstain from sexual morality, Lord, that we would be set apart from the world and how the world looks at sex, Lord, but that we would look at it as you have laid it out, Lord, and how you have described it, Lord, and that we would fall in line with that, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would walk in love, Lord, not just to those who love us, not to those who are just in the faith, but Lord, to all people, that we would be characterized, that people would know that we love you, okay, and that we are followers of you because of the love that we have for one another, for all those around us. And so, Lord, help us to live that uh, life of holiness. Help us to live that life of love. Help us to be pleasing to you, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.